So we're here at the Network Operations Center of Harvard, where most of the bits go in and out. And it's, uh, I'm very grateful to uh, my uh, friend and colleague, Jay Tumas, who's the director of this center, to, uh, for taking us on the tour. So Jay, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. Thank uh, you so much. Not a problem. Okay. Audio good? All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jay Tumas. I'm the Network Operations Manager for Harvard University. Uh, my group, the Network Operations Center, is actually comprised of five separate teams that all work to provide ISP-level carrier class services to the university as a whole. We'll see a network map when we go upstairs that kind of talks about how we distribute services and things like this. But basically, there's the Network Engineering and Planning Group. There's the Network Security Team. There's the network triage team, there's the converged services team, and systems and services. And those five teams basically provide services, combined services for the whole university in level one arena, which is like border, uh, network services, primary master DNS, email aliasing for the university, any username at harvard.edu goes across the right now. We have about 14,000 aliases active on the alias servers. Although all of that infrastructure is partially served out of this building, which serves as a central data center for the university, and the data center certainly relies on the core network, the core network does not rely on this data center to operate. And as you'll see upstairs on the network map, there's only two routers out of 16 that exist to serve this data center on the core network. Some of the border services do flow, flow, uh, flow through this building. Other border services flow through other co-location points presence on the campus. So if we can head upstairs, I'll show the operations center, talk a little bit about network map, network management, and then we'll go into the data center. This is the joint network and server operations center that basically allows for centralized operations and surveillance of the university's central infrastructure. Okay, And I say central infrastructure because there's a range of different core networks at Harvard University itself. Harvard University, on the border of the network, routes over 500,000 addresses. And if you can see the pointer on the screen up top there, these two routers represent the border of the Harvard University. Currently, the border uh, is a couple of Cisco 7600s located in diverse, physically and logically diverse, um, co-location spaces uh, in Cambridge and Boston. Um, we have an extensive external fiber infrastructure. Um, currently, there's approximately 250 miles of Harvard-owned fiber um, that stretches around the city, Metro Boston, Austin, Watertown, comes back around. Um, our senior network architect, Leo Donnelly, is the guy that focuses on making deals with carriers, purchasing lease agreements, things like that, to get us in on fiber. Um, one of the most important ones we did over the last year was the B-ring, we call it, which basically is a fiber loop through the Longwood Medical Area that attaches to an A-ring that connects us with 300 Ben Street, which is a major co-location spot. It's a level three colo spot. Actually, we ended up buying the Enron suite when Enron went bankrupt, which we got a very good deal on, needless to say. Um, so there's, there's about a half a million addresses routing across the Harvard border. FAS, everybody here, I assume, lives on 142.47 address space, right? FAS is this cloud right here. So FAS, your cloud, your border, is directly connected to our border. We peer with you folks via BGP. 
Um, and FAS, the core of the network, is also connected directly to the Oxford Street routers, which is this facility. Those are 10 gig links. Um, currently, we're building 10 gig links on the core network from the borders to the core and from the core to Oxford Street because we're running those links now about 65, 70% average. We see peaks certainly up in the 90% range. Um, we're just getting to that point. We'll have 10 gig in place in a few weeks. Uh, by this time next year, for our next tour, I expect the whole core network to be gig, uh, 10 gig, I'm sorry, 10 gig Ethernet. The Longwood Medical Area is represented by this router up here. Um, we just added a second router in the Longwood Medical Area space. So the institutions, partners, care group, Dana-Farber, 15 major hospitals over in the Longwood Medical Area can all dual connect to the Harvard Core Network. Um, we'll be routing BGP to them as well. I'm currently coordinating with Aaron to get BGP names and org IDs and things like that that you have to do prior to laying this stuff out. BGP, they, they don't know all of the links. Okay, so border gateway protocol, yep. It's a, typically a, a routing protocol that carriers route on their borders. Um, it puts our routes, you probably know more than I, but it puts, it puts our routes in the global routing tables. Um, currently, the internet routing tables that we drag down from Quest, which is one of our commercial carriers, we have a gig feed to Quest, uh, and it's, it's two physical ports, but a gig feed to Quest. Um, and we have two physical ports to Cogent, which is our secondary carrier. It's about 160,000 internet routes in the routing table. So obviously, we try not to spread that around the network all too much. We try to keep it on the border. Um, for a while, FAS had a commercial feed. They had all the, the routes on their routing table. Um, and, and if you're not careful with a routing table that size, you can just crush your router not knowing if you type the wrong command or you list the wrong routes or make the right, wrong routes active. So the other screens you see down below here are specific to the server operations center. And again, the server operations center is central administration's um, answer to centralized computing and data center operations. Uh, basically, the screens down below are anything from HP OpenView, NetView, um, uh, ITO. They monitor the systems themselves um, for system sanity. They, they, they prune syslogs and determine what needs to be reacted to and what should turn these icons red. Um, I started in this business about 20 years ago working for New England Telephone right down the street at 250 Bent Street at an operations center similar to this, a whole lot. Not, not as nice as this, but similar to this. And one thing that hasn't changed in 20 years is red is bad and green is good. Okay, that's, you know, we, we, we have audibles that, I don't know, do you guys still have audibles down here that go off for the big stuff? Uh, no, the no audibles? Back door. Okay, all right. Um, we used to have audibles in the control center to wake up the guys at 3 o'clock in the morning when something critical happened. You know. um, and that's why this is here actually as well. You notice that's nice and comfortable so you can just crash out if you have to. Um, this actually came from a design at 350 Coach Road, which was a $77 million operation center build. Um, same mill work as this, we brought the same people into the, to this mill work as, as did 350. That operation center that I worked in monitored all of the New England and New York SS7 network components. SS7 is signaling system 7 protocol. It's an out-of-band call connection thing that we put in place back in 90, uh, 89 and 90 across New England and New York, which led to advanced intelligence services, which is a lot like the data network. They were trying to make the telephone network as intelligent as the data network, which they still are. I believe this is satellite fed. Is that satellite satellite fed? That clock? Yeah. No, no, I mean sorry, satellite um, uh, satellite deployment. So you have uh, server uh, deployment locations in the a, a, you, you, like a clocking infrastructure for the network you're referring to? Oh, or? I was wondering why. Oh, why? 
Well, because these guys get calls from all over the world. Yeah. Those were just the standard ones that were on the clock when we got them. I can actually change them. I can make, I can put more uh, time zones up there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, basically, I'm sure it helps in some, at some points because we have traveling faculty that travel all over the world. They take their VoIP sets with them. Plug it in Japan, call here at 3 in the morning, and you know, they're talking at different times. These guys got to write out tickets and things like that about what they're doing. So I'm sure that helps out in that realm. That last screen down below is a local screen that was developed to support uh, temperature and humidity monitoring in the back. Um, there's a bunch of SNMP probes in different areas of the data center, and that feeds, uh, and again, red is good, green is bad, right? Um, this was a, a program that was open source uh, that was out there. And that's something I wanted to mention is a lot of the network management products that we use here, although we use a lot of commercial stuff like Intimapper. Um, Intimapper was actually developed at Dartmouth back in like the early 90s. We baited it with them, and now we get a great deal on it because we help them develop it and things like that. Um, it's a really good network management system. It's, it gives you a good view of the network. It shouldn't be a primary. Our primary system is something called SNM Pole. Um, which is developed by Conrad Nobly. Some of you folks might know Conrad. Um, he's been maintaining that now for 10 years for us. And that is the primary network management system that we use for all our alerting. Um, we've actually, all the network engineers carry trios, and we get pages in secure web format with live links on them. So we can actually go back. I'm trying to keep the guys in bed so they can get some sleep, right? So it goes off, they hit a live link, it goes to whatever was alarming, and if it's come back, it's green background with all the information on it. If it's marginal, it's yellow. If it's down, it's red type Jay, of thing. So they know Jay, if they have to get out. We want to hear a horror story. <laughs> you want to hear a horror story? <sighs> I don't have many, you know, I don't have many of them, but the ones, the ones. Yep, yep. No, I, I got it. I, I, I got it. What makes the network go down? Cisco software makes the network go down. <laughs> This will be good. This will be good for the website. And actually, I'm going to an executive briefing in May, so I'll have to talk to Mr. Chambers about this before I go out there. Um, Cisco quality assurance around software has been an issue for a long time, and it's not anybody's fault in particular. But the problem with Cisco software is there's so many chassis and so many versions of code, and unless you're paying an additional three million dollars for their software services agreement, they're not going to point at a version of code and say this is safe harbor code, you can use this. So my horror story, we use RSPAN across the core network, which basically means if we have a trouble over on the Kennedy School of Government network, that's the KSG cloud out here, um, and I leave that up there just for demonstration purposes, I can RSPAN these links across the core network using the redundant core network, because remember, the, this, is a, this is the carrier network that serves all 160 some odd departments, faculties, and affiliates at the university. So there's, in this, this circle here is actually two 6500s, so it's actually two spoken web networks. We ship back all of our RSPAN traffic to the data center here to our intelligent layer 4 switch cluster, which basically breaks down it starts off by breaking out H, uh, web traffic and non-web traffic, and then it goes down into different an analysis systems. Um, it was a VoIP problem, so we initiated RSPAN. And apparently, there was a bug in Cisco code where if you had initiated RSPAN with some configuration, I don't remember exactly what it was, whether there were SOUP2s at the originating end of the RSPAN and SOUP720s at the terminating end of the RSPAN, basically what happened was it set a race condition in every 
switch on the core network that we had soup 720s in, which are the latest and greatest soups that uh, Cisco has out. We had to physically go to each site, and these sites included one border network, or one border router. Um, that border was at Ware Street, I believe, so we had to drive to Ware Street. And this is five in the morning, typically we do a lot of this work remotely, one guy's on campus, so he has to run around and do all this. Um, 175 North Harvard Street, Longwood Medical Area. So we, wanted, we had to go around the core network, physically power these routers off and power them. We couldn't even talk to these routers. And it was a bug. Um, the problem is it wasn't a public bug because it hadn't been discovered. Yes? What is the, the, red, the red bad? Uh, red bad, yep. Well, that's orange. That's orange, dude, right? So basically what that's telling me is it's, it, it's hitting 70%. Those links are hitting 70%. I think that's CBR or JBCC, Judge Baker Children's Center or uh, the Center for Blood Research, and that's a T1 link, so it's a 1.5. So, so, the, so that's why he's getting smoked. He knows he needs more bandwidth, yeah, it's like but it, it's a small center. Yeah. Funding is an issue. <laughs> you, you, and, I mean, that's what it comes down to. It all comes down to how much bandwidth they can afford. Um, Location-wise, they're at a disadvantage as well because they're off the fiber loop that connects partners, care group, Mass General Hospital, all the big hospitals over there, they're, they're kind of out of the way so they don't have any fiber infrastructure running directly to their building, otherwise they'd be at 100 meg and they wouldn't have a problem. This link here though is getting smoked and that is a, uh, that's a one gig, uh, that link's getting smoked. There's a lot of, lot of traffic on the link. The, the traffic's running hot. Um, that's a one gig feed, so it's probably running in excess of 70%, 700 megabits right now. But that's feeding multiple gig and 10 gig feeds across the whole of Longwood Medical Area. So I would expect that link to get, to get hot. Again, approaching the, they're approaching the Shannon limit on the channel capacity. There right? you go. That's it. Okay, it's real. That, oh, that's that's, that's reality. Channel capacity is real. It turns red on the screen. Now, <laughs> you'll see that go red or orange a number of times a day, um, and that's the reason why I talked about these fiber rings and the fiber infrastructure that we've implemented over in the Longwood Medical Area. We're going to dual feed those hospitals with dual fiber, dual gig ethernet fiber infrastructures that are directly connected to the Harvard border and the Harvard core network. So basically we'll be able to split the traffic up nice. Non-Harvard bound traffic will go directly to the borders. Harvard bound traffic will dump on the core. So we'll, we'll get that. Right now they're not really, they're not realizing any bad delays, but now you look over here and some of the traffic, see the yellow? That's a wireless OC3 that runs from the top of the Dana-Farber building to the top of William James Hall. So right now it's dumping traffic, it sees a more favorable route, probably time-wise, right? Uh, sees a more favorable route coming across a wireless link to the core network. Either that or there's a big FTP transfer with something directly connected to this router here, which is over North Harvard Street. So, um, and we have management systems that allow us to detail all of these different traffic patterns. We look at traffic a number of different ways. Conrad's system is basically raw data and MIBs, SNMP objects, pinging away. Um, that's a pull-based system. We have other systems that are trap engines. So if something's dying and it sends out a trap, we get that information. Um, we use NetFlow aggregation in our ArborNet product. NetFlow is actually dumped to us from the Longwood Medical Area routers, and there's going to be two there soon, and the border. So all of our NetFlow, um, raw data, and actually most of our intrusion and anomaly detection that we do for security purposes is done from the border. We're getting to a point, in about six months we'll be there, where we'll actually do intra-core IDS operations. There's a NOC customer portal that if you folks want to check it out, it's at www.noc.harvard.edu. And that gives you a, a look into these tools, but we've developed most of these tools locally. And 
basically what we've done is taken all the data from our border ADS, IDS systems, centralized syslog, which is hundreds of gigabytes at this point that we're dumping into that thing every month. Um, we prune them all out, we get the false positives out, we present them to the customer. So we've developed a security event manager that just shows the pertinent information. If you are from the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, you log in, you see all the address ranges in logical fashion on a grid, it's SVG graphics, and it looks like a little network map, and you can click on the hotspots and see the logs specific to that area of the network that we glean from the border IDS and ADS. Shall we move along? Let's, Let's move along. Thank you, Harry, for, for, for closing. Because I've been here at the university for 10 years, and when I first came here, what they asked me to do was to build a network infrastructure that would support the university going forward for the next couple of decades. So over time, we moved from 10 Ware Street, which was a very small operation center, to 1730 Cambridge Street, which was a little bit bigger, a little bit better infrastructure. As we moved in, we put in cable trays above all the racks and everything else. We did more with power and tried to do as much as we could with wire inventories and things like that. When we came here, my experience from the phone company really paid off because this is really a carrier class phone company grade data center that any central office would be happy to be in as far as a maintenance situation goes. The power for the building, I'd like to start there, there's two 14,000 volt feeds that feed this building diversely. It comes into two high voltage step down plants, the big step down transformers basically, that cut the power down, 483 phase, dumping into two UPS plants two full rooms of batteries, two full rooms of controller cards and everything else, which basically feeds this whole room and actually the whole building. And how those two lines translate is it comes up and in each one of these racks there's two sides of power strips. Sometimes there's one power strip, sometimes there's two power strips, sometimes there's three depending on how much power your equipment's drawing. And each one of those power strip sides is fed from a different physical grid from the commercial side is how it works down, and it's all separate equipment, including the PDUs in the floor, which are extremely configurable depending on where you get your big draws in the room. So even when we laid out these cabinets, and I'll just give you a brief description of how the data center is laid out, these cabinets here, knocks one, knock racks one through nine, and then knock rack 10 through 20 are all the network operations center racks. All the other racks that you see on the floor are either RCR racks, which I'll tell you what those are in a minute, um, or they're customer racks that have customer service in them that might be customer maintained, like FAS, Harvard Medical School, and other customers, but SOC monitored. So folks have a need to put 20 systems in to do some grid computing. We're directly connected with I2 at the border. We're one hop away, soon it'll be 10 gigabits right to the backbone of I2. So they want to come in here and put some systems in. Basically what happens is they pick a rack location, or we pick a rack location, they install their rack, they connect their systems and network requirements that are driven from the RCR, the regional communications rack, that comes back to the DCCRs, which is basically the central switched infrastructure for the data center, okay? Um, and if you guys want to filter down here, you can take a look at this. This is the way, when you guys are out there doing this stuff, this is the way data center wiring should look. Everything's tagged, everything's tied. You go to one end of the cable and it's tagged, you know where the other end is, right? This is hard to do. This is a body and a half. Just keeping track of all this cabling. But I can't tell you how many data centers I've gone into at places like, oh, like well, I'm on tape, I don't want to say, at large corporations that run great data centers and provide unbelievable services. 
but there's like, you know, yellow cables flying across here and there's stuff on the floor and you look inside and it's just a mismatch. And I have, seen, I have some of these pictures. It's just a mismatch of wires and all the switches. And if you had to change a blade, you're dead. I mean, there's no way you're gonna do it without powering down the chassis, right? So with this configuration, we can literally pull a blade out we know what everything's connected to, put the other blade back in, everything connects right back up. Um, the way this is laid out right now is we, we had a situation where we had two 6,500 chassis that were gonna allow all the customer systems to dual home. Well, 512 or so connections per chassis, we ran out pretty quick. So we started running fiber links that can be one of 10 gig to these RCRs with smaller port density switches. So now we've increased our port density. Right now there's probably close to 600 servers on the floor here right now. And again, the dual switched infrastructure, there's two switches out there, there's two sides to the network. This switched infrastructure and the Knox switched infrastructure are fed from two routers, both Cisco 6500s, that basically are dual connected back to the core network. So these will be 10 gig to here soon. They're 10 gig to FAS, so we peer directly with you folks for the data center connectivity. Um, and everything's duplicate in the chassis themselves, including physical location. There's one here, there's one on the other side. All this fiber is the core network fiber and the, the A-ring and the B-ring fiber that we keep talking about. There's another rack of fiber in nine. These two racks of fiber are diversely fed into this room. So even though we're talking about a small space, oh yeah, yeah, even though we're talking about a small space and we're putting everything together, we've fed this place diversely. And this is all done under the floor with multi-level trays that you can see underneath here. Now I purposely spent money on getting these glass tiles in here so people can see how clean it is under the floor. Really it was a, an experiment for me because we've done this before in other places like in the phone company and in 10 years, it's all dust, it's dirty, there's wires all over the place, the power's on top of the ethernet, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is basically how we've kept it. I mean, if you open any tile under here, it's just as clean. We have a theatrical company come in twice a year and vacuum all under the floor to keep it clean. Tell, tell us what those are. Um, well, there's a wiring standard. There you go. Uh, right here, which basically allows us and most of these standards are implemented in the customer racks and in our racks. But looking under here, the yellow is all obviously either gigabit or 10 gig ethernet. Most of these, uh, actually the yellow and the blue are the runs that come in from the RCRs and I believe the grays are the RCRs on this side of the floor. This was all put in by equipment installer type quality engineers. We basically spec'd out what we needed in all the racks, where the RCRs were gonna go, what our port density was gonna be way before we came in here. At the time, there was 4U servers, and that was really saying something. A 4U server was a big deal back in 98, 99. Well, now they're all 1U servers. This is all fiber? Um, no, this is actually all CAT 6E. Okay. CAT 6E. Um, the fiber itself is in these thick plenum cables. Um, yellow is single mode fiber. Orange is multi-mode fiber, and I'm going to say the I, I rarely see gray, but I'm going to say gray is multi-mode as well. And that's the fiber layer of the the tracks underneath. Underneath that track, that fiber layer of tracks is actually the copper layer of tracks. Underneath the copper layer of tracks is the power. And PDUs are spread across the floor from units along the wall, which we'll see as we take a walk around. So the main PDUs are all against the, the wall along with the AC units and the environmentals. 
And then there's PDUs under the floor that spread the power out at either 210 or 120, whatever we need. Let me just throw this back up here. There you go, buddy. Throw it up there. Thank you. So does anybody have any questions? I'm sorry. Power distribution unit. I know. I start talking in acronyms. You got to you gotta give me one of these. Stop, stop. How big of a hassle was it for you when they wanted to install wireless? Did that affect you guys at all? Well, wireless is a great technology, but obviously it's really insecure. There's a lot of problems with it. There's coverage issues. What are you going to do? ABG? Should I wait for N? Is it going to be X? Is it going to be I? You know, who knows? Um, I think right now we've got a really good wireless infrastructure out there. Now I'm talking the UIS wireless infrastructure. FAS has a completely different methodology in how they're laying their stuff out. Um, on the central administration side, we've got probably about 150 wireless access points that we're supporting right now that are spread across all areas of, you know, Harvard Square, different administrative buildings, 8 Story Street, Holyoke Center, um, certainly this building and uh, you know, other customer areas, faculty club, places like that. Um, as long as you put the right firewall rules and ACL rules in front of these, in front of this stuff, and you watch your address space, wireless isn't a big issue, because you can easily protect yourself from the bad guys getting on your wireless. And everybody, anybody that wants wants to get on wireless can jump on wireless. If you go to Wiggle.net, you ever been to Wiggle? W-I-G-L-E.net. It's a database of about a half a billion wireless access points with GPS locations. Just type in Harvard University and see the 1,500 places you can sit around and what the SSIDs are and how to log in. And this is something that's contributed by a, a bunch of different people. The, the bottom line is people not logging in with an HUID can't get to anything on the Harvard network. It's all outbound email and HTTP kind of stuff. Um, so they're pretty much harmless on our network. But the bottom line is wireless as far as how you build the funding models for it, because if you base your local area network charging on the number of jacks and live ports that are out there, well, wireless, right? So now you got to go to address space, you go to usage, um, and every time you take a jump in that with the community, it costs me more to do that. I have to go back to them and say, well, now I'm analyzing all this data. I need to buy these systems. I need to build, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? So yeah, it does open up a whole new dimension. I'd like, I mean, wireless is a good thing, and I like to call it recreational networking. I mean. I really do, because it has come a long way. It's certainly a vital part of what we do. But right now, without VPN encryption and other safeguards, you just open yourself up to a world of trouble. Um, and that's what I tell people. If you're going to use wireless, the first thing you do is kick up a VPN, then you do anything you want. Um, it's a great mobility tool, but I think it's got a couple of iterations to go before it becomes as solid as the wired stuff. How are we doing on time, Harry? Okay. You want to take a walk around, folks, and we'll just, just kind of look at some of the equipment? Um, like I said, this is a 6500 router, the same chassis as these switches here, just a different iOS version, right? Same chassis, different iOS. Um, the one difference in this data center between the knock racks, which is why I said these 20 racks are ours, and then all the other racks are customer racks, is because I explained how the RCRs connect up with the DCCRs for connectivity to the network, right? In each of the network racks, there's actually facilities in the back of each of these racks that come to a separate DCCR, which provide us with KVM access to all our servers, router chassis, network attached storage, VPN concentrators, and everything else. I have a question. Yes? How much does all this equipment cost? 
<laughs> I got him. Yeah, yeah. How much does all this equipment cost? Um, a lot, a lot. If we were a commercial carrier, we'd be paying millions of dollars a year for what we bring in here. Um, right now, I can tell you that it's not. We we spend a good amount of money. It's a, it, it, it's about you know give or take around a half a million dollars in capital on equipment on an annual basis. And we, we did that purposely 10, 11 years ago when I came here because when I came here, there was a network budget, there was a project budget because the network had been neglected for so long, there was no way to take care of it except if you dumped a couple of million dollars on it. What we've tried to do is to keep rates flat for our customers and build in a certain amount of capital on an annual basis. So we've worked with Cisco to get some pretty aggressive discounting. As you can see, most of the network equipment is Cisco. We've got a lot of leverage with them. Um, every time we can pry something free out of them, we do. So. Do you have clients that are not Harvard affiliated? Do we have what? Clients that are not Harvard affiliated? No, everybody on the Harvard Core Network has to be an official Harvard affiliate. So whether they're a teaching affiliate, a hospital affiliate, they have to be an affiliate. There are some very rare cases where some very high level brass will say, make this happen, you know, it's happened in the past, for whatever reason. And, and of course, we, if they're on close to the network, we can get them connected. So, and that's wrapped up in an, like an initiative type of thing. Um, so I answered your question. Okay, so all these other systems you see here, I mean, this is our network security cluster. These are the spanned ports that I talked about. This is an intelligent layer four switch cluster, okay? Basically what we're doing here is dumping anywhere from, and this is real time live, about a gig, uh, gigabit per second to two and a half or three gigs a second into two ports on the inbound side. Those, and that's all the traffic from the border. All ports, all traffic, all the bandwidth to the commercial and I2. That gets dumped to some top layer switches which split it up across all of these analysis systems. We used to use the 6500, which is why this big space is here. We've replaced it with some purpose-built, um, you know, 10 gig backplane switches that are able to analyze the data and rip tags off if we do MPLS, things like that, or VLAN tagging. It can sense that, rip, strip the tags off, and then send it all to the analysis systems. So we try to keep everything close so it's all related. This is the primary security cluster that is primarily Snort at this point in time. Uh, we used to be in Terrasis, still running in Terrasis. As of July 1st, it's going to be 100% Snort. And a lot of the interfaces we've developed here. Um, Five minutes? All right. Absolutely. Yes. What what they do is, um, and, and I'll show you these systems as we walk around the corner. For the financial systems, payroll, you know, registrar, the the the, the business critical functions that the university performs, and we provide support for here. We have a center down in Karlstadt, New Jersey, that's maintained by SunGuard. And basically, if we just kind of move down here, you can see these systems. You know, all the financials, all the payroll, um, I'm sure, you know, student records and things like that are all backed up to tape, of course, every day. There's incrementals done. These large systems here, the Celera uh, uh, systems, the Connectrix, the EMC, the EMC gear is all network attached storage, you know, um, three, four terabyte arrays. I'm not quite sure how many terabytes we have here now. This, these are the big iron systems. These are the financial systems, the Sunfires. There's a, there was a Sun 10,000, which was the largest production Sun manufactured down the end here. That's gone. We replaced it with a bunch of Sunfires. You know, digital library initiatives, all the digital recording that they're doing of all the ancient works and whatnot. 
And of course, the financial systems, risk management, the endowment, the financials, all that stuff. If we were to have a disaster and this was to become a smoking hole, a very important fact to remember, and I might have already said this, but I'll say it again, is that this building relies on the network. The network does not rely on this building. So this building becomes a smoking hole. Everything's gone. The border's still up. The core network's still up. The only two routers that are lost are the two routers that feed this building. Everybody else is connected to the network. Everybody else can still do email, emergency management, building surveillance and operations. A lot of police and law enforcement traffic flies across the Harvard network. That's still up and running. So, I mean, emergency services, as far as the data network goes, is all still up and running. The major core network sites are all UPSed. Basically, we keep, keep, up, keep them up for about four hours. In a lot of places, we have emergency power. Like in this building, there's a, I think it's a meg or meg and a half watt generator upstairs on the roof with a separate emergency life and safety generator. So all the, all the lighting works, stairways, elevators from all that, and this infrastructure. Um, there's a 6,000 gallon day tank in the basement for diesel. And we have a, a contract with um, one of the local oil companies to come in on a daily basis if we declare an emergency and fill that 6,000 gallons. It's about what the building, build, building would burn about 5,000 gallons a day to keep it up like this. But we could do this indefinitely, just like any telephone central office. And that's really the key here to think about and to walk away with is there's very few universities on the planet that take their IT operations as seriously as Harvard University does. And this is a testament to that. Because 10 years ago, and Harry probably remembers, we were on our knees. There was all kinds of problems, both technology-wise and just collaboratively. And we've come so far in that 10 years to provide something like this that a Quest or any ISP would be happy with. The, the students have stopped downloading movies, and that's helped a lot, too. Jeez, I'm kidding. Ah! <laughs> wow, that just shoots everything right in the foot, doesn't it? Uh, so anyway, these are the big iron systems, all the financials and things like that. This is the network portion, and as we walk down here, you're going to see, you know, hundreds of racks. These are all customer-owned, okay, customer-maintained applications. Could be anything from HR services, human resources, to central administration. Just so you know what's on the edge here, these big units are all AC units. They're uh, 20,000 ton units apiece. Environmental, humidity, temperature. No, you know, we should pipe the heat out and heat the rest of the building instead of killing it with the coolers, right? Hey, anybody with a little thermo knowledge, let's think about this. This could be a money-making deal when you get out, right? Take the heat from the data center, heat the rest of the building. You're basically fighting yourself with these, aren't you? And the smaller units, like those two white ones right there, are the main PDUs. So those PDUs take the 483 phase from the UPSs downstairs and then distribute them to the smaller PDUs in the floor. You're going to see a range of servers and different systems. I mean, you got everything from, you know, the Sun 1U Sunfires um, to Dell servers, Sun Towers. These are all different customers with their own standards of their own equipment. And, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what they're interested in. The bottom line is when you run in the data center, you want to standardize in your equipment. You've probably heard of, heard of standardization along the way. Um, we've standardized on compact EL380s and IBM systems, okay? Um, Who gets to name the servers on the racks? Oh, buddy. <laughs> IT folks are pretty wild, yeah. let me tell you. Yeah, yeah we're, we're deep into it at times. 
So yeah, you'll, 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 you'll come up with all kinds of crazy names. I'm sure the really crazy ones probably don't get printed on the outside, right? So as we expand the data center, this used to be the last row right here, um, but, and we use this for a staging area, uh, but as you can see, we're laying racks in. FAS bought a, a whole bunch of space. Uh, the Harvard Medical School just bought all this space and they're going on the other side. And some of the other larger faculties look at the space as well. As grid computing becomes more important, I'm sure you folks talked about grid computing in class, um, they're transferring enormous data sets and doing enormous computational analysis on a lot of data, whether it's astronomical, atmospheric, scientific, stem cell, bio-research. And Harvard is the center for so much of this stuff. Um, there's a huge collider coming on board over in CERN in the next eight to 10 months. That's part of the whole grid computing project, which is why we're beefing up the feeds from this building, basically to our border and internet too, to 10 gigabit. Anybody got any questions? I want to know how many BTUs you pump out of this place every day. I, I could make one phone call and find out. Hundreds of thousands. Send, it to, send me an email later I will. I will. I will. I will. I can, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go through the tons of cooling and figure this out. Any other, any other questions? How much information do you think goes through just getting into the Harvard network? Like, on a daily basis. Like petabytes an hour? On a daily basis, the core network transfers anywhere from 250 to 350 terabytes of data, trans-core, intra-core, so that's from router to router type of thing. What happens across intra-chassis would add to that, and the, the, the internet traffic, both commercial and I2, translates to about 7 to 15 terabytes a day of total traffic. That averages outbound traffic anywhere from 400 megabytes a second to well over a gig and a half a second if you combine all our outbound feeds. It's awesome. just a huge amount of data. Thanks a lot, Jay. Really appreciate My it. My pleasure. Thank you very Thank much, you. Harry. Okay. Thanks nice to lot. meet everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, and if I can ever